Good morning, church. It's so good to be with you. And if you're our first-time guest, I just want to welcome you to Salem Heights Church and say thank you for joining us this morning. You can find out more about who we are and what we have going on at the church right now by visiting our website, salemheightschurch.org. Well, this is an exciting morning as we come together and, and worship and to hear God's word. But we also wanted to let you know that starting next Sunday, March 7th, we will be returning to live in-person services. Uh, we have all kinds of information available on our church website homepage where you can learn about registration, uh, nursery, and any other questions you might have. So make sure you check out that website. But we are so excited to be back in the room together with live preaching and live worship starting next Sunday, March 7th. We hope to see many of you there. Well, now let's turn our attention to worship and the preaching of God's Word. Well, good morning, Salem Heights. Uh, if you're with us online, we welcome you this morning. Um, and if you're here in the room, uh, we invite you to uh, stand with us and worship. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new have come. And I love that verse because it just so clearly tells that truth that Jesus didn't just come and save us and then leave us to kind of just figure stuff out on our own. But he came and he changed who we were. He gave us a new identity that wasn't defined by who we are, that wasn't defined by how we define ourselves, but was defined by the creator of the universe. And so I would encourage you as we sing this to not only lift these truths up to him, but allow them to minister into your heart. Let's sing them together. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in, oh, his love is a There's a place for 
Father, we thank you um, that you didn't just leave us to figure out life on our own, Father, but you saved us in such a way that you gave us a new name, you gave us a new title, and you gave us a new reality in you. So, Lord, I pray that uh, we would not define ourselves by ourselves, but we would define ourselves by you. We praise you and we thank you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Salem Heights, and I pray you are blessed by our time in worship. Um, by God's grace, hopefully next week, we will be doing this service live. That is all, uh, that is our prayer. Uh, and so we pray in that uh, you will join us in praying that that will be true. Uh, we're going to be once again in our series, Christianity on the Grow. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this week. We're just going to be looking at the first half of this chapter as we investigate some things uh, that are the same even as a culture changes. Um, I read this last week, an interesting article about a book that just came out uh, proclaiming that we are the weirdest people that have ever lived. What happens if you are in what is considered the weirdest culture? And they're using WEIRD as an acronym. It's a book by Joseph Henrich. Um, How the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous. That's his premise. The idea behind WEIRD is that uh, there is a way of thinking that comes if you are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. What happens if all of those things are in your bag of tricks as you grow up and come to an understanding of the world? Well, he says that you become a person who operates with a weird mindset. In other words, it is tough to reach those individuals with any truth outside of the truth that they have grown to appreciate. I do believe that we live in a weird culture. I think that that's a great title for a book, but it's also a great title uh, if we're going to take a look at a message that looks to uh, find ways to share the gospel in different cultures. You have to accept that the gospel itself comes across culture by culture, people to people, individual to individual. It comes across as a weird offering. How do you proclaim truth to a culture that is weird? Paul does this with excellence, and he shows us a couple different ways to do that in this chapter in Acts 
17. It starts like this. It says, after they passed through Amphilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As a result, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it's necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace and formed a mob. They started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. They say that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. And after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. And the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. When the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. What I'd like us to note this morning um, is just under the rubric, as things change, what stays the same? As things change, what stays the same? Paul goes to Thessalonica, and then he goes to a place called Berea. Two different cultures, two different responses. Eventually, at the end of this chapter, he would go to Athens, and in each location, some things changed, but some things remained the same. What are those? I want you to notice first, as he was in Thessalonica and then Berea, that your presentation may differ. That may change, but you will have the same content. The content that we need to highlight is Jesus as presented in the Word. It says uh, here in verse 2, as usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. In Thessalonica, it says that he explained the Scriptures that has the idea of completely opening up what has been before shut. 
That's the idea of this Greek word. To explain the scriptures was to go back to something that seemed like a locked box and to pop the top on that and express everything that was in there, completely unveiling the contents of these truths to people who before said, I don't know how this can be true. How is it that the Messiah can both be a priest and a king? How is it that he can come uh, and, and be a man, but also have so many godlike qualities? How is it that he's going to die for us if we need him to lead us? And Paul explains the truth about Jesus, that he's the living God, that he performs not only all of those things of a prophet and a priest, but also is a king, uh, that he died but rose again from the grave to set them free. And he opened all these things that seemed like a lockbox, like they were shut to the Thessalonians. They began to ask questions, and, and you can see some of the questions that the Thessalonians asked if you read First and Second Thessalonians. They asked questions like, how do we know that Jesus is the Messiah? What else am I missing when it comes to Jesus? What else do I need to understand about him? What other things will he accomplish? How should I live in light of this? What do I do with purity? What do I do with my free time? What should I focus on while I'm waiting for the kingdom to be established? And finally, when will the kingdom come? Second Thessalonians, they open up with the fear that the kingdom has already come. And Paul gives them the indication of what needs to happen before the kingdom is established. But the Thessalonians had all of these incredible truths unpacked for them in the season that Paul was there. He completely opened what seemed to be shut to them. And they were converted. They believed. They put their faith in Christ because of Paul's unveiling of the word. But then it says that he went to Berea. And there's a, a different word that's used here. It says that the people here, verse 11, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's a really intriguing term, that they were more noble-minded. Some have implied that the Bereans were just more educated, uh, or they were more regal. But what's interesting is, if you take a look at the, the structure of the cultures back in the day, Corinth and Thessalonica were major trade towns. They were the capitals, the centers of industry. If you had any kind of wealth, you would go to those cities and you would sell your goods and then they would be dispersed to the countryside. Thessalonica was a major thoroughfare on a major uh, route, a road that would take people from one place of trade to another. It was a central city on a main highway. But Berea is 40 miles off the beaten path. It would be like going off of I-5 and up into the hills, 40 miles removed from the main thoroughfare of trade. It's not that they were more noble-minded or that there was just a hidden college of intellects that was up there. But in fact, what it is saying here, I believe, is uh, that word noble is used of individuals who are focused on the king. In the Gospels, it says that a nobleman went away on a long journey. Jesus used it in a parable as a picture of God, a picture of himself. In uh, 1 Corinthians, that term is used. It says, consider your calling, my brethren, that there are not many wise, not many noble. 
If to be noble just meant to be wise or intelligent, he wouldn't have used that word side by side. But he says, no, there are not many wise and there are not many noble, not many that are focused on the king. The Bereans were a group of people who were eager to see the king. And they had studied the scriptures every single day to know what God would have them do. They were so soaked in the word that when they heard the truth about Jesus, it just fit with what they already knew about the scriptures. It's not that they were more intelligent or educated. It was that they were more focused on the word of God. I had a friend when I was growing up, and uh, he and his dad really loved working on cars. And I can remember going over to his house one time, uh, and, and he was working on this Jeep, and they had just put a 305 into this Jeep. It's an engine. Uh, and I didn't know much about engines. I knew enough to be able to change an oil or be able to work on an alternator. I didn't know anything else. And so I'm going over there, and they're talking about all kinds of crazy stuff, about cams and lifters and uh, how much horsepower and output this engine would have and whether or not this Jeep would be able to do what they wanted it to do. And he comes in and he's asking his dad if the engine is done. And right away he can see that it's not ready to turn the key and drive out of the garage. And I didn't see anything on there that was uh, evident to me that there was something missing. But he looked at it and he said, uh, hey, where's your carburetor? And he said, yeah, it's the last piece that I need. And he says, well, you have an Edelbrock carburetor over here in the corner of the garage. And instantly they're talking about this language, once again, that I didn't understand. But just by looking at the engine, because they knew the parts and they knew what went into there, they absolutely knew at that moment what that engine was missing. And as soon as the carburetor was brought over, they knew that once that was assembled and put on, uh, everything else got connected that the engine would run the way that it was supposed to run. And sure enough, they got that assembled that night. They fired up that engine, and man, uh, he tore off out of the garage with a gleam in his eye and was excited. They knew the missing piece that would cause the entire engine to run. The Bereans were like that father and son. They had known the engine, they, they knew the word, and they knew the missing ingredient that was needed in order for the entire thing to lead to salvation. The Thessalonians were a lot like uh, many of us today. We don't know how the engine runs. We don't know how things go forward. We've become loyal to a brand. Well, this brand has always gotten me from point A to point B. So I get loyal to a brand because of its reliability. In each of those synagogues, Paul would show up to a group of people, Jews and proselytes, Greeks, who said, this religion has always gotten me from point A to point B. And so he uses a word at the beginning there that means to explain to them fully, to open up to them. This is why you've been able to get from A to B in the past, but now that will not work. You need to trust the finished work of Christ. He's the one that completes the picture so that you will be able to get from here to eternity safely. He uses that picture. The Thessalonians and Bereans were different cultures. They had different preparation, but it was the same thing that they both needed. They needed an understanding of Jesus Christ through the word. But there's a second thing that we see here uh, in a changing world and in changing cultures that still remains the same. The other thing that 
may differ from place to place is that your people may differ. But it's the same process. We need to yield to the word in order to be transformed. I want you to notice that there's different backgrounds. The Thessalonians uh, would have been rich. They would have been from a, a city that would have been uh, filled with newcomers and all kinds of trade and all kinds of, ex of experiences. And the Bereans were from a backwoods little village. Things would have stayed on a daily basis basically the same. They had a different standing in society. They had a different way of thinking. That's highlighted there. It even has different genders that responded to that. In th the Thessalonican culture, uh, that it says the Jews and the Greeks came uh, at the same amount, but it was more prominent men that responded, and then some of the women as a result. In Berea, that gets flipped on its head, and now it's more Greeks respond, and there's a bunch of prominent women that respond, and then some other men. Different cultures, different responses, different genders, different uh, in every single way, but in all of those circumstances, it was yielding to the word. That's what's highlighted. Not who they were, not what gender, not what culture, not what background. It's that every single person who experiences transformation has to yield to the word to be able to experience it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 gives us a really well-known picture of this process. It says, for the word of God is living and effective. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It's penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's through the word of God that the truth about who we are gets exposed, and we realize that we have to give an account to the living God. It's the Word of God. That idea that it is living and active is the idea that there is a, a sharp, uh, like those old uh, turkey carving knives that were electric. You could turn them on and they were constantly moving. You didn't want to set that down on a table with any kids near you. Uh, those things are continually active. It's dangerous in the wrong hands. But what Scripture says is the Word of God is living and active. It's continually cutting, but held in the hands of the, the Savior as God takes the Word and applies it to your heart. He cuts out only that which is cancer. He removes those things that are destructive in order that which was life would remain. The Word of God is the key to that process of transformation. I was listening to uh, a pastor describe that process of transformation that happens. And in scripture, the term uh, is metamorphosis. We actually undergo a metamorphosis. And the classic understanding of that is the change from a caterpillar to a butterfly. But I was reading about that actual transformation from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And there's some things that I did not understand are actually going on when a caterpillar stops eating goes into a cocoon and comes out as a butterfly. Um, there actually, uh, one guy noted uh, in the footnotes to The Hungry Caterpillar, the book that we read to kids and they're learning how to understand the world. 
This caterpillar goes out and begins to eat leaves and all of these different things, particular types of nutrients that are necessary in order for it to grow, and it goes from a little tiny worm to something that is quite large. All of a sudden, one day, it eats its final leaf and it turns into uh, a process of beginning to spin a cocoon. Uh, when that cocoon is finally um, finished, that caterpillar stops its activity. Now, when he's inside the cocoon, he doesn't just all of a sudden go, okay, I'm going to take this uh, cell and I'm going to change it from a leg into a wing cell and I'm going to start working on something here and, and begin to change it into uh, an antenna or change my body style or change the way that I uh, take in nutrients. No, that caterpillar just goes into a dormant state and everything that it has been feeding on has been feeding those cells and there's actually a process that the caterpillar goes through where there are actually chemicals released within the caterpillar that dissolve everything that was caterpillar and begin to reassemble everything that is butterfly. It's an oversimplification, but that's the essence of what happens. A caterpillar just turns into caterpillar goo and reemerges as butterfly based on the processes that were started by the things that it was feasting on. It fed, that allowed a process to happen, that allowed it to change from one thing to another. When it comes out, it doesn't look the same. It doesn't hunger for the same things. The caterpillar does not know how that transformation happened. It's a process that is organized and prepared by God. The scriptures indicate that the same thing happens to us. Any transformation that happened for the Thessalonians and happened for the Bereans happened because they saw the truth of the word and as they feasted on the word, these noble-minded Bereans were transformed from one way of living to another. They went from their culture, their ways, their heart, their disposition to God's ways and being kingdom-minded. They were focused on him. They were transformed by that which they had been feasting on. Now, I just want to ask you really quickly by way of illustration, what if you're not experiencing growth? There's another illustration used by a pastor recently of uh, going out and seeing his daughter watering the sandbox. Day after day, she's watering the sandbox, and he asks her finally, why is it that you keep pouring water into the sandbox? And she says, well, this is... Uh, what mommy does to make her flowers grow and I'm running out of sand. And he had to explain to her that just pouring water into the sandbox isn't the way that sand grows. It's not a living thing. If you want more sand, he said, daddy's got to go to Home Depot and buy that and bring back more sand and put it in there. And the observation was this. It's possible that you have just been trying to add things to a dead life. And you get depleted and you go and you try to find more things to add to a dead life. But there is no actual growth that comes from feasting on the word. The process that God uses to grow an individual is not working in your life. And the key question you have to ask is, will I yield to Christ and will I yield to the word? He'll change you from dead, sand, into a growing and living thing through a process you can't understand. It's a supernatural process that just comes from yielding to the word. And the question is, will we yield? 
But there's a third thing that we see here in this passage, and that is that your locations and leaders may differ, but we have the same king. In our season right now, when all of the pressure begins to press in, what we hear sometimes from other churches or other leaders uh, may sound a little bit at times like we need to respond to them as the king. We got to be careful in this season. God has called us to unity, not uniformity. As we begin to look around in our culture, we need to remember that Christ has called us in different locations to live out our faith in different ways that will be able to yield and fit in to the place where we are. One set of leaders may be led by the Lord to respond to Thessalonica with a certain way of presenting the message, and another set of leaders may be led to speak to Berea with a different way of presenting that truth. We are all called to present the gospel. We are all called to live out that truth, but we may be called to do that in a different way. Same king, but it doesn't mean that we will have uniformity. We may have different ways of living that out. We need to give room for that. A couple of key considerations to help you kind of wrap your mind around what I think is happening here and a key application for our season, our context today. In 2009, the U.S. Department of Defense actually did a project. They were concerned that somebody would be able to hide a bomb in the United States and that they would not be able to find it and they would not know how it is that they could help people to see the urgency of that need. So they did a project. They hid 10 weather balloons, red weather balloons, around a certain area, and they said, we will give $40,000 to the people who can find this the quickest. It was a group of MIT students um, that actually discovered the quickest way to find those red weather balloons. They just promised thousands of dollars to individuals who would report to them where those red balloons were, and they used social media to do it. In fact, uh, they did it in just a few short days. They succeeded uh, with their plan. After a, a couple of days of planning, they succeeded in nine hours from the launch of their plan till all 10 weather balloons were found through social media by just saying they would spread the wealth around. Now, if I can oversimplify this, I would have you consider this biblical axiom. What is lost can be found when you share the wealth. Paul goes into Thessalonica and he begins to share the wealth, the good news of the gospel, and he explains it to these folks and the lost are found and they yield. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians it says that they were so transformed by the truths that they understood that there was a shockwave that went out from Thessalonica and they became evangelists just like Paul. They began to change the world. Everyone began to hear about this gospel that had impacted them because of what had happened to them there. But Paul also shared the wealth in Berea. And instantly a group of people who may have felt forgotten, who may have just been studying the scriptures, but never thought that a great teacher would come their way, they instantly heard and responded and yielded to the same truth. They were lost, just like those in Thessalonica, and they were found because Paul shared the wealth. 
The question is, are you in this season sharing the wealth? Are you sharing the good news of the gospel with the people around you? But there's a second application I think that is appropriate. In World War II, um, in that season, there was a little town, Estaca, Texas, who actually endured a, a horrifying event. They had a fire in a school and 263 people were killed. 263. And the fire was a horrifying event as they were trying to not only save individuals but put that fire out. It became apparent that the sprinkler systems that were in the school, the way of putting out a fire was broken. That town ended up building a brand new school. And for some of the older students that came in, some of their advanced students were actually given permission to give special tours of the school, focusing, emphasizing the sprinkler system that was attached to this school. When they came back uh, and the school was rebuilt, they were so proud of the sprinkler systems that had been put in there for fire suppression. Because of what they had experienced in the past, they were filled with a fear that it would happen again. This brand new school, they were all excited about it, tours were given, but seven years later, so many people had transferred to that school that they needed to expand it. And as they expanded the school, they discovered something horrifying. They had these beautiful sprinkler systems throughout the entire building, but the contractor that had put in these beautiful systems had never connected them to the source. Had there been a fire seven years, for seven years, there would have been no salvation. Beautiful systems based on real concerns, but no salvation because they weren't connected to the source. It is possible to have a beautiful system and no salvation. It is possible to have a beautiful system and not be attached to the source. The real question that I have for you this morning is, are you connected? We're getting ready to start live services this next week. It's not the only way that you can get connected. But one very real concern that we have in this season is that over the course of this last year, it is possible that because of what's going on in our culture, because of what's going on in our financial world, our personal world, because of what's going on in the closet of your own life, you may have become disconnected. You might have all the systems in the world. You might have all of the reasons in the world to say, no, I don't need that or I don't need this. But the question that the word keeps asking you to consider, that the living God would have you register this morning is this, are you connected? First, are you connected to the Savior? And second, are you connected to his family? The Thessalonians, and the Bereans heard the word, they got connected to the Savior, and then they connected with the rest of the known world. They shared the gospel. They were part of the family. And the question I have for you this morning is, are you connected? Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would help us this morning just to be able to surrender to these truths. When we take a look at what happened in Paul's life, uh, there are so many varied uh, experiences and so many different consequences that he endured. 
But the Thessalonians show up later on in his other writings, and the Bereans are a model for every single generation of how to respond. Father, help us to respond in the same way. When we see something that before was a mystery that's now unlocked by the truth of your word, help us to respond with joy. Help us to share it with other people. And Father, I pray that you would help us day after day to be so soaked in the word that when we hear a truth that comes from scripture, we would see just where it fits in the puzzle of our faith. Help us to be able to connect the dots, not, not just from hearing the word once a week on a Sunday morning, but Father, because we are daily in the word and we are transformed. Help us to be like the Thessalonians and the Bereans and help us to share the truth with a world that's in need. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.